This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving, cleaning, and even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average, and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. It's such an honor to present this next award. And here are the nominees. And... The Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to... And I can't deny the fact that you like me right now. You like me. I'm the king of the world. There's a mistake. Moonlight, you guys won Best Picture. I am Katie Rich, and I'm here by myself today to introduce an interview that I did with Lena Dunham. And if you think, oh, that's a name I haven't heard in a while, that's a little bit on purpose. She, of course, created Girls when she was in her early 20s and was very, very famous for a long time. Uh, and then took what she describes as a really deliberate break and was getting ready to make her new film, Catherine Called Birdie, just as a, a little global pandemic hit. Um, and it kind of changed the way that she made the movie and made it so that now, in 2022, she's actually out with two films. She has Catherine Called Birdie as well as Sharp Stick, which debuted at Sundance. But Catherine Called Birdie is uh, coming out now via Amazon Prime Video. It also premiered at the Toronto International Film Festival. And it is a YA movie. It's an adaptation of a YA book published in the early 90s when both Lena Dunham and I were kind of at the ideal age to read something about it. Um, and it is about a girl living in medieval Europe. Um, and it's a little bit ahistorical. It's got some pop songs on there, but also really looks at what it was like to be a girl in an era in which girls had no power, but uh, has this heroine, Birdie, who is played by Bella Ramsey, who you might know as Lana Mormont from Game of Thrones, who is spunky and mean sometimes and inventive and imaginative and really not willing to put up with the world that she's been put into, but kind of having to put up with it anyway. It's a really clever and loving movie. And in our interview, Lena talked about how maybe when she was younger, she would have wanted to make a darker story kind of about harsh realities that obviously would have faced someone like Birdie in this period of time, but that the pandemic really made her seek out joy. And I think the way that this film was received at Toronto um, bears out that that's what people are looking for, too. It was a really great conversation. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Let's hear from Lena Dunham, the writer and director of Catherine Called Birdie. Well, I'm so happy to be joined by Lena Dunham, the writer and director of Catherine Called Birdie. Hello, Lena. You're in a whirlwind tour. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much, Katie. It's a pleasure, and um, I'm thrilled you asked me. Good. Um, so you had the New York premiere as we're speaking, but you were also at Toronto about a week ago. True international tour. Um, how has it been? How has the Toronto premiere specifically? Those TIFF audiences can be wonderful. And it seems like you guys had a really great premiere. You know, I had never been to TIFF before and I was unbelievably nervous, partially because I'd never been to TIFF, partially because this movie is a culmination of, in some ways, my like entire life's work <laughs> and having found the book when I was 10 and held on to it close to my heart for all that time. And also just because it's been a while since I've done 
press at this scale. Like we used to sort of, you know, trot out for these for these long openings for girls, but I've I've had a little time away from that. And my last film was a much more sort of indie introduction. But our audience was so warm and loving and welcomed us. And I really loved the feeling that Toronto is, you know, I've never been to Venice. I've never been to Cannes, but I know it's a very sort of discerning industry audience. Tuxedos in the crowd, that kind of thing. Exactly. And this really felt like it was just like people who love movies. And that's an amazing way to premiere your movie. Yeah, I, I was thinking about how you had another film this year, Sharp Stick, but that was a virtual Sundance. So, like, you haven't done this audience thing in so long. Oh, my God. When we premiered Sharp Stick, it was like me huddled in a hotel room with six people being like, uh, is everyone watching this at the same time? Like, I didn't even understand the technology. I was very grateful, but I didn't even understand the technology. Yeah. I mean, the feeling of Catherine called Birdie, too, I think. Like, it's such a... It's a cheerful movie that still has a lot of, like, thought behind it. It's YA, but has, like, big feelings. It just seems like exactly the kind of thing you can, like, ride an audience wave with. I don't know if you stayed and watched it with the crowd, but I'm assuming that they responded. I did stay and watch it with the crowd because I had never had the chance to do that. Again, this movie was made during COVID, so it wasn't like we had lots of, you know, test screenings or yeah. when we did test the movie. It was actually digital. Like, we, when they send it out to test audiences, it was similar to Sundance. It was a virtual test audience. So being in that space, I kept leaning over to my husband and being like, are people laughing? And he was like, yeah, they're around you. They're laughing. <laughs> you can like, hear I it had, with your own ears. I couldn't hear. I'd like dissociated and was hovering above. <laughs> but but it was amazing. And, and you know, I, I was curious about how, you know, what the dream would be you could get an audience in of, you know, 13 and 14 year old girls. And we now have, there were some 13 year old girls in our audience last night, which was a delight. But I wasn't sure if, because it was sort of made for the 13, 14-year-old in me, I wasn't sure how an adult crowd would respond. And it was really beautiful to see them appear to understand and connect to it. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, you've talked about how this book has meant so much to you since you were a kid. And I remember being a kid. I'm not a filmmaker, but, like, I would read books and be like, this is how I would make this movie. I can see the opening shot. And I wonder if your, if your head worked that way then or if it took longer to, for you to think of it as a film. It's a great question. And I do feel like I reached a point where, you know, I couldn't read. Now to this day, I can't read a novel without casting it in my head. It's always like, and this role goes to Carrie Mulligan. Like it's a very, <laughs> very uh, process oriented way of reading. I think when I first read the book, it was literally like time travel for me. Like I would mm. enter another world. It was like a meditation, transportation, and like almost spiritual in a way, not to sound too too woo-woo. But but as a kid, I feel like you can put yourself in a world in a way that you can't when you're an adult. Like you can kind of travel in that way. That's exactly right. And it's the beauty of reading as a kid. I was obsessed with historical fiction. This was my favorite because it seemed like it was made for me and yet honored the fact that I had a lot of big feelings I couldn't always explain. And also there's a lot of sort of like humor in it that allows for the fact that kids really have a knowledge of how the world works. Um, and then I think I continued to read the book. And when I started to understand, okay, there are people who make movies. That is their job. They do this. Mm -hmm. That's when I started to go, okay, what would this look like as a film? And yeah, basically the first thing I did after Girls, when people said, well, what would you want to make? After Tiny Furniture and Girls, when people said, well, what would you want to make next? Was write to this author and option the book. Um but it was still a 10-year process from that to this premiere. 
Yeah. No, I love the reading that it was Karen Cushman's first book and she was 50 when it was published, which is like really inspiring for so many of us. It's um, my favorite because I think this <laughs> culture places such an emphasis on sort of being precocious. Mm-hmm. And I certainly, you know, felt that pressure when I was when I was young. And I think knowing that you can be 50 and change careers, start a career, finally express yourself creatively. And, you know, Karen is an amazing woman. And a big part of why she wrote was her husband, um, Philip Cushman. And he actually tragically died very suddenly about a month ago. So she has not been able to be on this tour with us. But they were an amazing pair. And he encouraged her. They are an amazing pair. And he encouraged her to really follow this this thread she had. And she ended and she's written many books now that have this sort of historical bent for kids. And and one of them, Lucy Whipple, was made into a TV movie with Jenna Malone and Glenn Close maybe 20, 25 years ago. But oh, that's great. But somehow, despite its cult status, no one had optioned um no one had optioned Birdie. I mean, when you option it, it's right off of girls, you're still kind of in that like precocious, like very young part of your career. And I wonder if coming to it now and promoting it now and, and thinking about this book written by someone who is 50, if it, if it has different meaning for you, the book itself or, um, you know, where it fits in your career and life. One thousand percent. I mean, I think the biggest thing is that I'm so glad I made this movie now and not then because there's so much in it, whether it's the marriage between the um, between Bertie's parents or the experience of Bertie's mom losing a child during birth, or whether it's the emotional experience of Bertie's nanny or the older woman that her uncle marries. I feel like I was able to like inject them with a sense of humanity that you can only have from sort of being knocked around by life a little. And then in terms of putting the movie out, it's like I've been doing this job for long enough now that I know that a warm reception isn't a given. And I'm mm-hmm. able to not take it, take praise so seriously that I start to believe some kind of hype. But at the same time, I can appreciate what a rare thing it is to make something with a group of people you love that's full of love and then have it be received that way. And so that was what was so special about Toronto is, you know, the movie hasn't gone into the world at large yet, but but to have people receive this thing that you that you made with love, with love, I now know enough to know it's a rarity. Yeah, and you have that landing, like regardless of what happens to it, you've had that experience of it being embraced in that way. Absolutely. I mean, I feel really lucky because my parents are both artists and they always kind of told me, you know, reception to your work will go up and down. You're going to have to be able to tolerate that. And I feel like that education from them was such an important thing for me to be able to just exist in, as you well know, doing what you do and and talking to all the people you talk to. This is a very up, down, all around career. And you have to find a base that has nothing to do with people's perceptions or their reception. Although in classic YA fashion, like when your parents told you that, did you believe it or did you have to do it yourself and touch the hot stove to actually get it? 100% hot stove. There's no hot stove I haven't touched. (laughs) And my mom is very much standing there with her arms crossed saying, told you so. But that's just where we find ourselves. Yeah. I'm Bobby Finger. And I'm Lindsay Weber. Do you ever see a new face or name on your news feeds and say, who the heck is that? Our podcast, Who Weekly, is everything you need to know about the celebrities you don't. Think of us as your cheat code to People Magazine, your glossary for Hollywood, a shortcut to understanding pop culture at large. 
For the past eight years, Who Weekly has been telling listeners everything they need to know about the celebrities they don't. The New Yorker says we spelunk deep into the demimonde with convivial delight. That's a direct quote. Mostly, we're going to explain to you Irish star Barry Keoghan's sudden rise to fame and relationship with a not-so-under-the-radar pop princess named Sabrina. The fake wedding Real Housewives star Cynthia Bailey had to promote a limo rental company. And why all the Gen Zers you know are talking about a guy named Benson Boone. Each episode goes deep into the biggest celebrity stories of the moment. And if you're still confused, we even have a weekly call-in episode where we answer the most burning celebrity queries. Who Weekly airs twice weekly with brand new episodes on Tuesdays and Fridays. Listen and follow Who Weekly, an Odyssey podcast, available now for free on the Odyssey app and wherever you get your podcasts. I love what you said about the ending of your movie and how it's pretty different from what's in the book. And you weren't you weren't ready to have what happens to Birdie in the book happen to your Birdie. And I wonder if that's something that started when you started adapting it 10 years ago or if that was a result of getting older and kind of feeling more protective of this girl. I think it's definitely, definitely the latter. I think that the process of writing the film, connecting to Bella, who plays Birdie, And just really feeling that kind of crazy mother hen energy for this character. I think the younger me would have pushed for the uncomfortable ending because I thought it was sort of the brave ending. Mm -hmm. I I think the younger me loved to to sort of push something dark because it was real. And and while I still have respect for that way of doing things, um, it actually felt braver to create an ending that was a little bit joyful. Because I think for a long time I thought expressing joy on screen was like, too earnest or too populist. And and now I realize, like, especially post-pandemic and with everything that we are dealing with nationally and internationally, like, I want to experience joy. And it was actually during the pandemic. We were supposed to make the movie in March 2020. And as I believe you know what happened in March 2020. Vaguely familiar, yeah. Vaguely familiar. And so we paused. And during that pause, the ending of the film really changed. Oh, wow. Is that recent? That's fascinating. Yeah, I think that it was that experience of just life stopping and being like, God, what I would give to just hug my family, hug my friends, be in a group laughing. I remember saying, like, I will never not go to a party I'm invited to again. (laughs) That didn't have to be true. How long did it take for us to give up on that? (laughs) Maybe three days. But... (laughs) At that point, I just felt this pull of an ending that was more open and loving and vast. And um, and it's been really nice to see people respond to that. My my best friend is a filmmaker named Matt Wolf, an amazingly talented documentary filmmaker. And he came out of the screening last night and he is like a tough audience. And he was just weeping. And I was like, well... That is the that is the endorsement I needed. A, <laughs> a skeptical New York intellectual weeping. Yeah. I mean, the, you know, you're dealing with a story in the Middle Ages. Like, there's darkness literally everywhere you turn. And I know you've said that, like, a lot of that's not in there because she's a child. She's privileged in all these different ways that the movie's aware of. Um, but when you sit down and try to make it true to the period and, like, where do you figure out your line of what you want to include and where you want to say, no, this is our version of this period of time? It's a great question. You know, I think something that I found really interesting is that we have almost exclusively seen medieval life, the Middle Ages, through the eyes of men. Kings, monks, soldiers. We associate the Middle Ages with this, like, gray, muddy, decrepit, plague-ridden darkness. And, of course, that's there. But we've also never really seen things that were just about domestic life at that time. 
And that's one of the reasons I love Karen Cushman's work is because she's very engaged with questions of domestic life, which is so traditionally looked over because it's seen as like a woman's realm, a feminine realm. And then we had a historical consultant called Helen Castor, who is amazing. And she's very, very familiar with like what the patterns of life were for women in medieval period, whether it's whether they were aristocrats or servants or dairymaids. She's able to talk you through that. And something I felt was that like, even with color in the film, like we're always seeing gray and brown and drab, but there actually was an enormous amount of color in that period that, you know, women made real attempts to fill their environments with beauty and whether it was textiles or painting. And it's like, because history has sort of sucked the color from those items, we don't see that color then reflected at us. And so something I really wanted, I kept saying I wanted the movie to feel like like the medieval times are a little bit Coachella in the way that they look. So it's like, <laughs> let's bring in that kind of like Coachella brightness and then have moments where Bertie has a glimpse of the darkness that befalls her, whether it's seeing mm. her mother having an incredibly dangerous and painful childbirth, whether it's, you know, hearing tell of a hanging one town over. And I sort of, the way that I sort of justified what the town felt like is like, it's a small town, the plague hasn't reached them yet. Mm-hmm. There's, of course, they there are challenges every day, but that there is like kind of a a brightness and a simplicity to this place. And especially Birdie is also experiencing it with the brightness and simplicity of a child. Yeah. That being said, the thing I felt was that we had to know the historical rules in order to break them. So mm-hmm. it was really important to me that Helen look over everything in the film and let me know what felt real, what didn't. Like, I saw somebody had said, you know, this movie has bound books centuries before there. And I was like, no, no, no. If you look closely, it's two leather. It's a leather front and a leather back, and it's stitched up the side. You can't catch us out that way. Oh, there you go. So that <laughs> you're, you're very attentive to details when it really matters. That's the goal. And the goal was that, like, when we broke a rule, we could explain why we'd done it. Yeah. Well, and also, you know, there's moments where Birdie and Alice are kind of sitting there being like, oh, men are horrible. And it feels very modern. But, like, why wouldn't they have talked that way? And we don't have any documentation of what they talked about at all. So you're, it's like you're filling in these gaps. And we can assume that they can talk like this, right? It's so smart that you say that because all the books from that period. I mean, there's Christine de Pizan, who's an amazing medieval female poet, and there are remaining diaries of women in that period that have been located. But for the most part, women were told to shut up, not learn how to read. And so their ability to express themselves in ways that would remain historically relevant are extremely limited. And also, if we were going full realism, they actually would not be, they would be singing like Chaucerite English, which we would not be able to understand. Yeah. And I thought, Young women, marginalized people have always been able to have a very clear sense of sort of the ridiculousness of a kind of like patriarchal ruling structure. And I felt like if a teenager now is aware that they don't think that their parents should be allowed to tell them, you know, how to wear their hair, a teenager then would be aware that their parents should not be allowed to tell them who to marry. Yeah. I don't know if you got to see the movie Women Talking at TIFF or have read the book. I've only read the book, but there's these two teenage characters in the book who are just constantly rolling their eyes at everything happening. And it just felt exactly like what you just said. Like, they're always there. I cannot wait to see. I mean, Sarah <laughs> Polly is one of my absolute favorite filmmakers, living or dead. And I 
want women talking to be beamed directly into my brain. Between yep. that and the new Kelly Reichert movie, mm-hmm. like the best things in the world are waiting for me. Yeah, no, uh, Sarah Polly and now Sarah Polly and um, Kelly Reichert and like the Michelle Williams like triangle that they've created. It's like what I aspire to in all things. That is a blonde triangle that I want to just <laughs> plop right in the middle of. A power there were group. so many movies at TIFF and at Venice that I want to see. I feel overwhelmed and I'm obsessed with uh, hitting the watch list button on my IMDb because if I don't keep track of it, I'll lose my mind. Yeah. Well, yeah, this is the hard thing when you have a movie at a film festival, right? Is your world from one place to another, you don't get to see anything. Well, that's the thing is my dream would be to go to a film festival and just, you know, do like a triple feature every single day with Mm. a break for a snack. But that you end up not doing that. But there's there was so much that I wanted. to. I just watched the trailer for Empire of Light and wept. I mean, I'm just ready. I'm ready for it all. Yeah. I feel like also I feel like there were so many movies that people were waiting to release at a less at a moment when people could go to the theater. Mm-hmm. And I feel like we're in a really exciting filmmaking moment because people are like bounding back from the pandemic with this highly personal work that they've contemplated during this time off. Yes. So my theory is that like the pandemic, and I'm sure that I'm not alone in this, the pandemic created extreme introspection that has filmmakers making their most personal work to date. And so now we're just getting inundated with this really important work. Yeah, I mean, so, you know, we've noticing with this Empire of Light and Bardo, and I think Fablements to some extent, like these like very specifically autobiographical things. But even what you were saying about Birdie, like what you were feeling in that time made it directly into this movie. I think it's a fascinating trend to watch. I'm so excited about it. And yes, the direct, someone asked me in a movie, in an interview the other day, do you remember the first movie you ever watched and in the theater? And I thought it was really funny to say the Fablements. <laughs> Because it's about that. And I just, like, looked around and my castmates were like, what? And I was like, okay, I, I, I don't know. It was, I was, I was flexing. But um, <laughs> that trailer made me intensely emotional, too. Oh, my God. I know. Well, uh, and, like, I don't know if your feelings feel like they have, like, settled down post-pandemic. But I feel like I still just, like, feel things weirdly for the last My feelings years. are raging. I can cry. I watched the other night on Netflix. There's, like, one of the most popular movies on Netflix is this French movie called No Limits about, mm-hmm. like, a like a female free diver in a tragic romance. And I was sitting there, my husband was like, what are we watching? And I just had like tears rolling down my <laughs> face as she like, you know, swims with a whale. And I was like, okay, it's still happening. Yeah. It's still happening. There is a documentary that was at TIFF, I think, called Goodnight Oppie about the Mars rovers. And it just, it will make you so happy that like these people got that robot on the planet and then you feel for the robot and like it, if your feelings are in a weird place, watch that one. It, it'll make you feel everything. Cannot fucking wait. <laughs> I'm Chris Murphy. I'm Richard Lawson. And I'm Hillary Busis. We are from Vanity Fair's Still Watching Podcast. Next up, we're watching the new HBO show, The Regime. Madam Chancellor, let's keep the gloves on. This is not a confrontation. We're just saying what's true. Academy Award winner Kate Winslet is our chancellor as she leads a faux European autocracy in turmoil. We'll be watching week by week as the regime unravels. And we'll be talking to the stars along the way. New episodes of Still Watching will drop every Sunday after the regime airs. So to go back into Birdie for a second, I I noticed watching it again that she's a real jerk in a lot of times, like especially um, just like tossing off things that are really thoughtless. Um, And I think the likability thing has been over discussed endlessly. But I think 
figuring out where to place her character in her place and around the people around her. And then you get someone like Bella who can play all of that stuff incredibly well. Like, I, I, I wonder about the work you did to make your version of Birdie and to keep her real and mean, but so lovely in the end. Well, thank you. And it was really important to me that, like, this teenager does not have any special powers. She's not in a relationship with a vampire. She cannot wield a sword. Her biggest skill is that she's herself and she's ornery and she's can be an asshole. And I mean, I think everyone knows those are the heroines that interest me. Yeah. And at times I feel like I've written ones who took it too far. And I'm glad I did because I'm always playing with those lines. And my favorite filmmakers are always playing with those lines. And I think the big thing that came to us and my producer, Tim Bevan, who is the king of making people likable, was really helpful in this is that like, at the end, unlike many of the people I've written, she does absorb certain lessons and make changes to her behavior. Like she starts to understand what it means to give without receiving, what it mm -hmm. means to be happy for people. Like she steps outside her victim mentality. And with many of my characters, they don't ever do that. And so it was actually a really cool challenge to think about how, to, I think for a long time I was so angry about the expectations we had of women on screen that I just wanted to defy them. Mm -hmm. And now it's sort of, um, I guess, maybe a marker of adulthood that I am more interested in finding those soft spots and seeing how characters change. Because I believe people do change. And the funny thing is I'm actually like a pretty optimistic and earnest person. Um, it was almost like all of my cynicism was making its way into my scripts. And it's an exciting new challenge in my career. And even in the movie that I made before this, Sharpstick, even though I don't think that net, it was much more experimental and not everybody connected to it and I didn't expect them to, that character also undergoes a major shift in which her perception of the world and her place in it changes. And that's clearly, a re I think, a reflection of growing up. And one of the things that I think is cool is when we get to see a filmmaker's like one of the reasons I'm so excited to see the Fablemans is because I love looking at, and I've been thinking about this with, you know, Godard dying. I like I love thinking about a filmmaker's body of work over their lifetime and what it tells us about their inner life. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm constantly fascinated. I think this is coming with being in my late 30s, just like finding people who've been working for a long time and who have had their work public for a long time and watching the the pattern change and how growing up changes you. And I, th I think everyone says basically what you did, like, when you're in your early 20s, you think people are people and they're never going to change. And then the only thing that's consistent as you get older is that you recognize how much things can shift. Um, and it's, it's cool that you're watching that, too. Thank you. I mean, how much people can shift, how people who you I think a big thing for us all is starting to understand that our parents are people and the change that that creates in us. I mean, again, that takes it back to Empire of Light and the Fablemans, like the idea that as you get older, your parents inner life matters to you and the fact and their history matters to you they're more than your parents and that's a big lesson that birdie learns in this movie too is like yeah that her parents are people and that they've experienced things that she herself can't imagine and that she is not the as the as the teens on the internet like to say she doesn't always have to be the main character she can be the supporting character <laughs> i love that that's become like a meme for teenagers is main character energy because it is a lesson that we all learn in time <laughs> Oh my God, I am such a I am such a character actress, not a lead, and I recognize that now. Oh, I did want to ask you maybe as a closing thing what your what your feelings toward acting are at this point. You know, you've made this movie that you're not in. You were in Sharp Sticks, so obviously you're not leaving it behind. I was, but briefly, and I think 
I always recognized that there were actors whose really it was their calling and how amazing they were at it. And writing and directing is my calling. And I, I love the chance. I think acting is an amazing, it's an amazing and cathartic experience. And I learn a lot about directing every time I do it. But I also recognize that there is almost always someone who's better for a role than I am. And I only want to step into it if I really think that I'm the person who can give it give it the most. And and I always kind of knew that. And also girls was such a rigorous, it was, you know, on set every single day in that role. And so as much as I loved directing, there was always this other thing looming of performance. And it's been really, really nice to eliminate that. I think it's made me a better filmmaker, but I'm also totally open to acting under the right circumstances and when I really think I'm the right person for it. Yeah, it seems like a very reasonable stance to take at this point. Thank you. Also, it's a motherfucking hard job. And yeah, man. And every one of my friends at every, I would say to anyone who tells me they want to be an actor, I'm like, even at the highest level that you can imagine, actors are experiencing rejection. And they're also constantly experiencing this thing, again, of, that young people say, of being perceived. And it's it's a very, it really warps the space around you. And so I always say, you know, my, my parents are both artists, as I said, and my father teaches. And he would always say to his students, like, if you can think of any other job to do, do it. Yeah. Unless this is like your last resort, don't become, a, don't become a modern artist. And that's sort of what I say to my friends who, who want to act, because I think there are a lot of different ways to be a director and there be and even more coming. And you can always kind of create your own opportunities and actors can do that too. But they're also, I hate that so many actors I love are just waiting for someone to pick them. That does it for today's interview episode. We'll all be back on Thursday with our usual roundtable. In the meantime, find us on Twitter at HWD. I am at Katie Rich. And you can text us at subtext. Join subtext.com slash littlegoldmen or text 917-746-3771. Our editor and producer, as always, is Brett Pukes. Hey, I'm Brian Stelter, host of Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair. This week, with the help of Dan Adler and Olivia Nuzzi, we're going inside the media circus swirling around Donald Trump's criminal trial. People want coverage of Donald Trump. There are sort of shades of 2015, 2016. I found it to be a, a total break from the reaction to a lot of Trump coverage in the last two years. Join me, Brian Stelter, on Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair. Listen wherever you get podcasts.